Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast and your host today is Carla Reffold. We are joined by Kevin Senator, who is the CEO of Bayshore Networks, the company that is solving industry and IT network security. Kevin is a veteran software sales executive, with this being his seventh startup. Before this, he spent nine years as a VP of Worldwide Sales at Counterpain, a managed security monitoring service provider who successfully got acquired by BT. Hope you enjoy. Beach Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about you. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in uh, Northern California, but I grew up in Southern California. My father was an aerospace engineer. And so I grew up in Orange County when it, before it was the OC, when nobody lived there. Uh, it was a great place to grow up. Um, and uh, I went to college uh, uh, at, to uh, Cal State Fullerton to get my undergraduate degree in systems management and finance and um, stayed there um, uh, uh, first couple of jobs and then uh, migrated to Silicon Valley in the uh, early 90s. Wow, that must have been uh, an interesting time to kind of be there throughout the, the 90s. Yeah, I mean, uh, the joke I tell people is, you know, my career started in the computer industry when you would buy a 286 computer for 8,000 bucks, right? So I've seen everything from, you know, daisy wheel printers to dot matrix printers, you know, the battles between token ring and Ethernet, uh, the initial dot-com boom and bust, you know. And, you know, the interesting thing about this industry is it, it continually renews itself you know, as technology marches forward and finds out, you know, more ways to make people's lives more productive and more fulfilled, and which is the exciting thing about being in this business. Um, I made a conscious effort early in my career to push myself from technology to technology. What I didn't want to do uh, was spend 30 years at a hard drive company or 30 years, you know, at a, you know, uh, computer company. Uh, I pushed myself from software, you know, from hardware to software, back to hardware, to services, and to applications. And um, I think it's given me the ability, you know, to be able to look at a lot of situations and identify what, you know, should and shouldn't happen and, um, and have ma- has made me just a more cosmopolitan manager uh, from that side. But it's been an interesting 36 years in this business. Do you remember the first time you really heard about security? First time I heard about security. Um, you know, it was, 
Well, the first time I got involved in security was around um, 2000 with a company that failed uh, that was trying to make a high-performance um, firewall built around the Intel network processor. Um, and, um, and those were the early days where people were, you know, where you would have a gigabit throughput firewall from NetScreen or some of these other companies, which was all the rage. That's when I first got involved in security. And uh, my career took me from there to, a, you know, a very successful managed services company uh, that was acquired by British Telecom. Uh, so I got involved on the services side and then uh, through, you know, multiple software uh, companies. So for me, it really started in 2000. Now, you've done a number of startups over over the years. So what's the one thing that you would say is kind of constant throughout them? What, what always stays the same? Mayhem. <laughs> <laughs> um the um you know i i think when you do i've done seven startups um and one as ceo coo this one as ceo uh this was sort of a turnaround so it wasn't a startup startup when i was brought in um and the rest as vps sales um i think what you learn is actually what not to do in many situations. The other thing that you learn is that things can get bad and they can always get worse. I, I remember on one startup, um, one of my sales people, uh, and, and she was fabulous, actually carried the company for three quarters. Um, she said, Kevin, you know, it's really bad here every day. And you never seem to get flustered. And I just looked at her and I said, because I've seen far worse. And I think if you do multiple startups, number one, they're all not going to be successful. It's mm -hmm. kind of like baseball, right? If, if you hit 40% of them, if you get 40% of the hits, you're, I mean, you're, you're a legend, right? If you bat 400. Um, and if you bat 300 and get 30% of the hits, they're going to pay you $50 million a year. So you know, if you walk out of this and, and half of them have been successful and half of them haven't, you probably have been pretty successful. But you see a, a lot of different things about human beings and, you know, decision making. And I think it teaches you how to narrow the path and not and not do the wrong things. You know, sometimes it's hard to figure out what the right things to do are, especially when you're trying to create a new market. Um, but you got to have a passion for it. You know, it can really be worrying. And it's not, you know, uh, here's the one thing I have learned in this industry. A lot of people and a lot of large companies will look at who have been successful, probably, be, you know, because of their efforts, but also because they were within successful companies, get the lure of trying to go to a startup. And they go and they find out people aren't returning their calls so quickly because they don't have company A on their card. And that's hard for a lot of people to take. And so I've seen a lot in this industry where very successful people have gone from startups to failures. Um, and you've got to be real resilient. And, and it really is with a startup, you're successful when you get knocked down seven times and you get up eight times. And, and it's, it's no more 
complicated than that. What are the things that you would say, you know, you should try and keep constant for, for success? Is it about the people that you have with you or culture? Yeah. Well, it's, it's always about people, right, first. If, if you don't have the right people um, to go on the journey, especially the journey of a startup, um, regardless of how you try to modify the culture, um, it's not going to work. You, you really, you need, you need both. Um, is the simple answer, and it would be the answer that most executives would give you in this industry. It, it's really hard in today's environment on the culture because rarely do the teams work together anymore. Um, even before the current situation that we're in where people are working from home, companies are dispersed. Uh, it's not unusual to have a VP of sales that works on the other side of the country from the company and to have engineers that have certain skill sets working from home or working in remote offices. So it's an effort on the culture, but you absolutely have to have the people who are willing to give 120%, which is what most startups need to uh, succeed. And, um, you know, when you're in an economy that for the last decade has been fabulous and a lot of these people haven't seen a poor uh, environment uh, in the past. Uh, it's it's work to try to make them understand that things can get far worse, right? And um, but you have to have the right people. Uh, yeah, it starts it starts with that. And how do you find them? Do you do you tend to take people that you've worked with before? Yeah, I mean, so I, I my initial experience uh, when um, I started on the business side as I, I worked for Hughes Aircraft as a financial analyst. And then I took a job with Toshiba as a sales analyst only to learn the computer industry, thinking I'd go back into finance. And I ended up through kind of a, 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 a an odd path on the sales side and was very successful at it and worked my way up. So as a VP of sales, you tend to hire people that have worked for you before because it's a risk, risk mitigation exercise, right? And um, I think as you transition into general management, you, you try to do that, although it's harder, right? When you have to go find a specific engineer or controller or something like that, you then have to either base it upon them working for people that you've known, that you respect and you can talk to, or just the standard reference check, which, you know, is sort of nebulous in my personal experience. Uh, nobody ever gives you anybody who's going to be a bad reference. Um, and so it starts with people that you've known, but sometimes it just comes down to, you have to, as the company, especially as the company grows, it's the gut, right? Absolutely. And obviously there is a lot of people working, uh, working at home at the moment, trying to kind of work out how to keep that culture going. So if you've had dispersed teams in, in the past, what have you done to help with that? Well, <clears throat> number one, we try to communicate with, you know, with the team on what's going on. We use communication, you know, uh, whether it's Slack or Zoom, uh, send out notifications um, within the company. Um, I was up until March 5th traveling about 400,000 miles a year. And that was, you know, both visiting customers, but also visiting uh, employees. Um, we have a development team in Spain, 
And we, you know, have business going on in the Middle East and the Far East with employees. And of course, we have two facilities here in the U.S. And so I was just doing the round robin of trying to be in front of everybody all the time. And so you have to make an effort. I mean, it doesn't, it's not like the old days where you could be running an organization and come in and see 70% of the people and the sales team would be in the field. And you'd see them once a year, once you know, twice a year, depending on how you did sales meetings. Um, it's just, it's just a different world. And it, it was a different world even before this pandemic. Um, this pandemic makes it even tougher because you can't go visit them. And so everything is done virtually. Um, I think that we'll have to see how things change over time, right? You know, on how this pandemic lifts and how travel reinserts itself. Right now, I think everybody feels we're all pulling together in this battle against this disease. So I think everybody's okay with the virtual, um, the virtual meetings and, and the virtual team meetings and stuff. And it's sort of neat and fun, you know, type of stuff, you know. We'll see what happens over the next six to 12 months. It's been a, a great leveler in some ways, you know, lots of people are at home with their with their kids and we're all, you know, understanding of that, I think, whereas before, you know, you would certainly be very embarrassed if one of your kids got yeah. in the way of a call, um, you know, this is yeah. now the new normal, right? It's the new normal, dogs barking in the background, um, you can have the top you know, most important presentation that you have and it never fails that the UPS guy shows up with something that has to be signed for, you know, is <laughs> ringing the doorbell. I mean, it's just, you know, I think we all recognize that, you know, we're all human beings. <laughs> we're, we're trying to deal with this in this, uh, you know, non-business-like environment and doing the best we can. And it's sort of amusing, you know, when some of this stuff happens. So, um I think everybody's been good sports, right? We've, I think, you know, at least in my lifetime, you know, when you would talk to your parents who went through the, my parents went through the Great Depression and World War II, they would talk about a sense of community and pulling together. And in my lifetime, I think, you know, 9-11 in this country was a time where there was definitely a sense of community and pulling together. And I think today there's a sense of community, at least within, I can sense, within the business community, within customers, within vendors that, you know, we need to try to keep the economy going. We need to try to keep doing things we can virtually. And everybody's trying to be as cooperative as possible in doing this. And, you know, it's hard when you have a company like we do where products have to be installed and they have to be brought up to work. And, you know, we have to rely on our customers now to do some of the self-install themselves. But people recognize we're we're all in this together, and so that's that's great. And has it affected uh, your company at all? I, w- I would guess the demand can't really be changed by uh, by what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And so for the first few weeks, right, everything came to a standstill. Right when the first announcement was made, not only uh, within the U.S. but then very quickly across the rest of the world. And again, you know, we 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 do. Uh, quite a bit of business in uh, Japan and Singapore and the Middle East. So those places came to a hard stop. Um, and so for three weeks, it it did. Um, 
I think what we see now, uh, so two things happened, right? So first, you know, installations came to a, to a stop because we were doing the installs or our partners were doing the installs. And so clearly we couldn't get on site to do that. And so we had to revise our materials and our process to allow customers to do as simply as possible self-installs with us being able to help virtually or our partners virtually. I will say the one positive that came out of this is it became much easier to get senior executives um, on the phone to do what we call 30-minute tech briefings. Um, and I would joke, and I actually think this is, is absolutely true, that it's gotten a lot easier to get people on these conference calls because they're at home with the kids homeschooling and they tell their partner, oh, I got to get on this call. It's really important. And so where it would have taken us six months or more to get to a certain person within an IT group to get them on the phone, we've actually had a phenomenal success over the last three weeks of getting uh, people on board to these 30-minute briefing calls. So that's been the one positive out of it. Um, but you have to adapt. So we've really adapted as quickly as we could around self-install. Um, there are companies that can't do that. Right in this space, there are companies that are selling, you know, really, you know, large, ubiquitous software programs that are major installs and uh, turnups, and um, you know, I, I see the layoffs happening now, three to four weeks into this, and so I think that uh, for some of those companies, it's not going to be such an easy transition. And um, it's just going to be a new, it's going to be a new business paradigm for the next uh, next year or eighteen months. Well, I think it's uh, it plays into your "it can always get worse" mantra. <laughs> it, it 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 can get worse, right? And we're cognizant of that here. Um, I I suspect that any CEO in this space, especially if your people are required to be on site, um, are need to have, you know, plan B and plan C, especially if the unfortunate happens that there's a second wave of this pandemic. And if, you know, if it repeats as the Spanish flu did, where it's worse than the first wave. And so um, I, I do see companies that were very strong in this space that were touted as the leaders making 15 to 20 to 25 percent cutbacks over the last week and they're cutting people in the field which is the last thing you do as a ceo because once you start cutting people in the field you know you're really impacting your revenue source um but as all ceos know field, field teams are very expensive right um so I, I see people trying to make the adjustment. Uh, you know, we'll have to see how bad it gets. We're trying to migrate to where, as I, I said before, to where our stuff can be at least installed physically by the customer, and then we can virtually help them to do the tune-up. So let's talk a little bit about the the current organization, Basial Network. So. Tell everybody what you what you do and what products um, you help people with. Yeah. So we're in the industrial uh, OT space, uh, critical infrastructure, so plant and equipment, uh, waterways, water departments, um, oil, uh, oil and gas. What we do, what, what our founder uh, realized 
six to seven, well, back in 2012 when we started the company, although it was a kitchen table company for quite a while, was that when plant and equipment really started to come online, they would be at great risk because most of these, most of the plants are flat networks. There, there's no segmentation. Uh, there's very little security. And the people in the plants don't have a, real, a security background. That it would be very difficult to be able to match the manpower that would be needed to be able to identify an attack, mitigate an attack where it didn't impact production. So his goal was to build a policy learning and policy enforcement engine, an engine that could sit in an environment, actually learn what was going on under different process controls, under different environments, under different segments of the network, and then build policies for the equipment operator. Um, and then alert uh, when something was, was outside of those policies so the box can be tuned or the appliance can be tuned and then enforce. Um, and so there was great pushback initially uh, years ago, uh, a few years ago on that because people would say, well, we would never want to block in a critical infrastructure environment. And so uh, when I came on board, I, uh, I was fortunate enough to come on board when the transition started happening a few years ago between IT and OT. And I think IT CISOs are a little more open to the, the idea of blocking. But what we tell people is, you know, we're not going to stop your plant from operating. We're going to stop it from blowing up. So when we stop a command, and a lot of the commands we see are not actually nefarious where someone's getting in deliberately trying to blow a plant up. It's just what we call the fat finger exercise where somebody accidentally sends the wrong command over. You know, instead of this tire curing machine, you know, curing this tire at 1,800 degrees, somebody sends a command over at 18,000 degrees over, right? And so we stop that kind of stuff without stopping the plant. In addition to this um, policy learning and policy enforcement engine, they also realized they needed to do not deep packet inspection, but deep content inspection, being able to look at whole strings of data to be able to actually make sense of this command wrong or these few packets wrong. And so we're able to do that. And so we've married that technology together and built what we call a modular industrial control uh, cybersecurity system. And what that means is that we have multiple components that you can plug in to wherever your pain point is without having to buy and staff a ubiquitous massive software program. So for example, if your issue today is secure remote access into a plant, which you know is a big deal now with everybody working from home, we have a secure remote access product. What's different from our secure remote access product than the other products that are on all marketplaces? We take that policy engine and we, with policies, really tightly enforce behavior into the plant and where people can go and what they can do. And we marry that to our other products, which are a PLC protection uh, product, which sits in front of the PLC, or edge protection products that sit at the edge as gateways, and they can be interworked together with our management console where you can push one policy out to affect the entire plant. So if your issue is just secure remote access, you can buy that. If your issue is PLC protection, I absolutely need to protect my high-end PLCs, you can buy that. 
if your issue is edge protection or unidirectional uh, gateway uh, performance, and we have products that do unidirectional traffic enforcement, you can buy that. And then when you want to, you can interweave them together on one management console. And that's a little different than what the other products are out on the marketplace where, you know, um, uh, people will try to sell a large visibility uh, type of program. The, the issue with that is we don't believe most plants have the human capital to operate those uh, type of what I call industrial control alerting systems where they're just sending alerts. You have to have actually uh, people who actually understand the alerts and they can implement uh, a reaction. Our product line automates that. So we take into account the fact that most plants don't have a competent cyber analyst on staff 24 hours a day who absolutely understands what each production control piece of equipment is doing. And that's the difference between Bayshore and most of the other solutions that are out on the marketplace today. And we, we definitely see that um on, on our side as well, you know, there's not many people who understand the security and then the the OT side of things. Mm. They're um, unicorns. Yeah. They're uni- <laughs> no, but they are unicorns, right? Yeah, they, re- they really are. There's very few of them. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel well, that... I'll tell com- you this. Sorry, no, you go-, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I'll tell you this little story. So the story was back in 2002 with Counterpain... Um, Internet Security, which was a very successful managed security services company I was part of. But at the very, you know, this was early days, right, where people would monitor their networks for attack. And the idea was we would monitor your equipment, you know, and mitigate an attack, right? And we wanted people to have IDF solutions, right? Because we wanted to get those alerts coming across. And I can remember walking into one company one day and, you know, the first question I would ask is, do you have any IDF? Snort, you know, basically they were at that at that point were snort IDSs, and and uh, I can remember, and I won't mention the name of the company. The gentleman saying, "Yeah, we bought twelve six months ago." I said, "Great, what are you doing with the you know the, the alerting? You know, what are you doing with that data flow?" He said, "Well, we unplugged them all last okay. month," and I was just flabbergasted. I said, "You unplugged them?" He said, "Look, we're getting so many alerts. I'm not staffed to deal with this." But when I get these alerts, I have to report them up to management. We just can't keep up with it, right? So I just unplugged it. I'm like, okay, that, that's not the right solution. Right? <laughs> so the right solution for him was a managed security service provider who could take the alerts and make sense of them. Now, what eventually happened was Tipping Point came along. And Tipping Point automated the response to many of the alerts that were coming across on the enterprise and the same fear, uncertainty and doubt back in 2002 and 2003, which was, this will stop your enterprise business, this will crash your systems, you know, everything, all these IDS providers could throw at tipping point, they did. And what CISOs understood is, well, I can put this in an alerting mode, so it's just like a stored IDS, and if I have to turn on the blocking, I can, and CISOs then figured out that they can tune the network and block out a lot of the stuff they said, I absolutely know I never want this to happen. And then funnel up uh, the more critical things that they actually wanted human eyes on. 
within 18 months to two years, you couldn't give an IDS note away on the enterprise side. I mean, you couldn't give one away because a CISO knew that the threat signature growth was exponential. And it was exponential. And it still is, but it was really starting to take off in the early 2000s, right? And that they had to have some type of automated response. You couldn't add enough analysts within an IT department to deal with this stuff. I believe that same paradigm is about to hit the OT side, which is why I'm here. There is no way that an IT group that's taking over an OT infrastructure uh, and uh, and everybody's online, even when they tell you we're air-gapped, no one's air-gapped, well, almost you know, outside of a nuclear power plant. They're all going out to an historian. and they all are, have some type of contact. You're never going to be able to add enough analysts who understand infrastructure and understand security 24-7 to be able to mitigate an attack as it's happening real time. And so you're going to have to have uh, an OTIPS, which is essentially what our core technology is. And I, I believe that. I uh, Just in 36 years of doing this, it seems natural to me. And you can tune out all of the stuff you absolutely don't want to have happen and then allow uh, certain types of alerts to go up to human eyes. And it's just, you know, I just, I, I think history is repeating itself from the enterprise side to the OT side. And there's no magic here. It comes down to the number of alerts and how quickly you can respond and to the number of people that you have on staff. And mathematically, it's not possible to deal with this stuff on a human basis. And I think that's the flaw that a lot of these ICS uh, visibility and monitoring and alerting tools have. They'll say they want to send the alert to a NAC device to translate to a firewall. The problem is uh, on the OT side, is generically the firewall, when it sees an attack on a certain port, it shuts that port off. That does stop production flow within a factory, right? And so you need to be able to actually look at the packets of what's coming across and the content of what's coming across and stop that nefarious contact or, you know, where it's a fat finger mistake, that mistake and that content, but not actually shutting the port down so you don't stop the production flow. That's a huge difference. The problem is, is most of these companies, you know, have IT sales leadership uh, and they don't understand that, right? Um, I think they've been very successful over the last two years because of a lot of IT CISOs have taken over OT and they just didn't know what they had. And so they bought a visibility program to, just to find out what they had, which I think was, you know, smart you know, what they needed to do. But the value on the OT side, once you do visibility, most of these networks don't change. I mean, if they change once a year, it's a lot. It, you know, a lot of them don't change every five years. It's not like an enterprise network where they're changing every 30 seconds while somebody walks in with a new endpoint. Um, the value then comes with the continuous monitoring and alerting, but that's the Achilles heel. And that's what we're starting to hear is people say, well, we installed this stuff, but we're just being bombarded with alerts. And getting a ton of alerts does you no good if you can't respond. Now, back to the original part of the story, unplugging the stuff doesn't do any good. Uh, that was just a story of desperation, right? But 
um, you need to be able to manage the alerts as they come in and you need to automate the response. And, and that's where we fit in the uh, IT, OT uh, product matrix and uh, levels of security. We provide automated, the ability to automate threat response. Now, you've touched on it a little bit there with, you know, sort of changes in IT leadership. What have you seen over the years with uh, regards to security? You know, is it now better understood? Have you, have you noticed that change? Well, so there's, there's, I'll answer that from two ways. So clearly on the enterprise side, corporate boards realize that a lot of bad things can happen if you don't take security seriously, right? You know, your company can come down, you can lose stockholder value, you're subject to stockholder lawsuits. And so, um, you know, it's a board level position, you know, uh, everybody wants to hear from the CISO. And, um, and so, you know, I think people take security seriously. On the OT side, there is a convergence where if, um, if the corporate CISO hasn't taken over the OT uh, operations. They actually have a lot of influence. And so why is that good? And there's, I don't know Don Capanelli, who's the CISO of Rockwell, but I saw an interview of her out on LinkedIn and she actually, I think, nailed this 100%. She said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, as a CISO, I would love to see the vendors that I have you know, map over to the OT side. And in some respects that will happen, but, you know, in a lot of respects won't, that won't happen. But what will happen is the paradigm of what of the security posture on the enterprise side will map over as far as layered security, segmentation, endpoint security, um, you know, secure remote access, you know, authentication, all those different things that we've taken for granted with these great layering of security on the enterprise side, which was essentially non-existent to be honest with you, outside of energy uh, on the OT side, that paradigm is starting to take place. Now, it's going to take a decade, right, to go through and establish the leaders and establish, you know, what products will and won't work. But you're not going to see flat networks anymore. You're not going to see a firewall and a gateway and a factory completely open, you know, which is, you know, really what 80 to 90 percent of them still are. But that change has started to happen. And it started to happen from the influence of the IT side and CISOs, you know, let's be honest with you, right? You know, I always ask people, what's a CISO most afraid of? And people will say, oh, he's afraid of an attack, you know, loss of data. I say, yeah, he's most afraid of being fired. And because he normally gets fired because there was a large loss, a large data attack. And once he gets fired, it's really hard to go get another job, especially if you're the CISO of a large public company because there's risks associated for reemployment of that CISO to another large public company. So they you know, need to make sure that they're doing everything they can to show that they've done everything possible to mitigate an attack. And so now that boards are telling you know, the ITC, so well, really, you need to be responsible for plant and equipment, they're bringing the, you know, the layered approach of of security mentality over to the OT side. And I think that's a good thing, right? So what do you think we're going to see over the next few years coming out from the security industry? Well, I mean, I'm focused, I mean, the security industry is so large and ubiquitous, you know, I mean, I'm just solely focused on the OT side now. I'm just 
just not even paying attention to what's happening on the enterprise side. I, I think in general, you'll see more tools that will make ease of authentication for employees into a network, just g- generically. And so I'll say that, um, um, you know, whether that applies to IT and OT, you know, you know, pa- passwordless uh, capabilities and stuff like that. Um, on the OT side, um, it's very immature. Um, you've gotten just at, you know, a granular level. Some companies have deployed visibility capabilities. Many companies cannot deploy that. They can't afford it. They don't have the people to do that. I do think you'll see on the OT side, you know, automated defense being layered in and um, segmentation of of factories and networks where, you know, there'll be, you know, hard PLC protection at different levels of uh, the Purdue model of workstation integrated in with uh, perimeter protection. Um, That's coming. Um, And in some respects, it's in place, uh, starting to be put in place now. the greenfield in the industry, and it's well, it's really a brownfield, but it's the OT space. I mean, you know, it's kind of hard on the enterprise side to go someplace where there aren't layers of firewalls throughout the segmentation and all this stuff. On the OT side, it's in some respects sort of frightening the lack of security. And so I, I, I think that you'll see over the next decade a great maturation of security into critical infrastructure and operational technology. And by the way, you know, Today, I think, is actually a very poignant point on what what do you consider critical infrastructure? You know, if you would have asked that question six months ago, people would have said, well, you know, you know, is it, you know, water districts? Is it the power? Is it, you know, maybe airports and stuff like that? Well, critical infrastructure could be the meat processing plant, right? Which, unfortunately, are being hit by this pandemic, but also could be hit by a cyber pandemic. I mean, cutting off the food supply is a great way to sow pandemonium within a country. So, you know, if Ford or General Motors went down for eight weeks because somebody infected their PLCs and every PLC had to be removed from every robot, right, just to sanitize them, that's critical infrastructure to this country, right? That's a huge economic impact. So I think the term critical infrastructure, I mean, you know, I... There, there are only there are very very few good things that have come out of this pandemic. But I mean, I think the broadening of the sense of what critical infrastructure is to the country is widening, and that will widen to cybersecurity, uh, cybersecurity's impact to places of critical infrastructure. So um, I think critical infrastructure is anything that touches the impacts the daily lives of the public. Right. And that could be anywhere from banking to food production to water to uh, a lot of things. But many of those things have compared to the enterprise side on the enterprise security are very poorly secured. I think that will change over the next decade. I think that's a really interesting, interesting point. You know, we've all been made aware how, you know, how few days we have in, in our food supply and, um, you know, particularly in the UK, where non-essential businesses were told to shut, you saw some companies rushing to claim that they were essential. Uh, I have to wonder if uh, if they're regulated around their cyber controls, if they'll be as quick to claim they're they're essential then. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, right. When they have to put money. Right. Yeah. When they have to, you know. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, and this is one thing that I always thought about, right, uh, is that the, just the critical infrastructure goes far beyond what most people would think as critical infrastructure. And again, most people think of water, power, um, maybe oil and gas. A critical infrastructure goes to the heart of not only food production, but our largest manufacturers, right? They, they would have a tremendous impact. And we're seeing that today. I mean, you know, it's a pandemic, but let's just say this was a cyber pandemic that attacked all of our major uh, and uh, producers, whether they were car manufacturers or all the pharmaceuticals. Let's say the pharmaceuticals were brought down for six to eight weeks because there was an infection of the PLCs and the PLCs actually had to be removed. And there aren't enough of them in stock immediately, so they would have to be manufactured uh, in some cases. Um, that's critical infrastructure, right? So yeah. I, I broaden critical infrastructure to what touches the welfare and the benefit of the daily lives of the population of that nation. And so it goes beyond the military, beyond the water and power to the food production and the economic production and protection. protection. The problem is, is that on the manufacturing side and on the food production side, and actually I can say even on the water side around the world, the protections are actually very poor on the OT side. It's sort of actually surprising when we walk into some of these places and you kind of go, okay, this, things could get really bad here. And for the city of 300,000, the water supply could be cut off tomorrow because they have a firewall installed that was installed five years ago by an integrator. And when we ask the plant operators, well, what are you doing with that? And they look at you and say, I don't know how to write a firewall rule. I don't know what it's doing. And, and that is not an uncommon response we get from water districts right now. It's, it's, yeah, it's surprising. And we've seen, uh, you know, I think maybe one or two attempts at, at sort of taking down water plants across the world. We haven't seen a, a successful uh, nefarious attack. Do you think that that's going to happen or, or, or why aren't we seeing that? Well, we just saw one the other day in Israel, right? It was published. Um, I've missed that one. I there you go. <laughs> yeah. So that actually was out on the Internet. There was an attack uh, just like it was this week in Israel, which really you would think would have the best security uh, because of the posture of the country. Um, you know, in some respects, you sit there and you go, well, where were all the bad guys? Because the OT side has been completely wide open, to be honest with you, outside, again, outside of power. I think power actually is very secure. You know, there's been much, a lot of regulations around power plants. But um, the... Um, you know, it's, uh, I think the bad guys are sort of like us. Sometimes the light bulb just, now you can hear my dog sparking. Yeah. Um, um, sometimes the light, light bulb goes off, even within the bad guy community, going, oh, wow, these guys really aren't protected. But then it comes down to what do I get out of it, right? And yeah. then, you know, people attack either just for malicious political reasons, right? Or they attack for financial gain. And so it comes down to what kind of financial gain do they Right. right. But but for water, 
um, specifically, you know, look, from a terrorist point of view, there's really nothing more critical than if you stop the water supply, right? I mean, you can only, we can only go a few days, you know, uh, without having that. And, um, it's, it, it, that's, you know, when people, when people ask me what keeps me up at night, other than trying to run a small company through a pandemic, because I'm exposed on the, uh, the water stuff right now, I don't think the general public knows how poorly the security posture is with most of these organizations. And within the U.S., there isn't a ubiquitous water authority. There's like 3,500 water authorities across this country. Some of them very small and, you know, some handling individual cities. But um, there are standards that are being put in place this year and next year by the federal government that they have to adhere to. Um, but it's, it's, it's an environment that um, it's at risk, you know, I think. Now, we end each podcast with 10 quickfire questions. So I'm going to need you okay. to answer the first thing that comes into your head. Are you, are you ready? Yep. What turns you on professionally? Uh, working with my employees and making them successful. What turns you off professionally? People who don't put out an effort. How do you unwind? The re- 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 my reputation is as I don't. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to try? Uh, a pilot. What activity gives you the most energy? Meeting customers. Who is your biggest inspiration? Uh, it would be uh, actually my mother. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Resilient. You are at your best when you're doing what? analyzing a problem if today was the last day of your life what one lesson would you impart that resiliency is the secret is the secret to success if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say as the reason he is letting you through the gates uh you helped a lot of people and you never stop trying Excellent. Well, I think uh, I think that resilience is a, a really great lesson and a really good theme for for now as well as uh, as well as through the startup journey. So, uh, so thank you for sharing yeah. that. No, my pleasure. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to chat with you today. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe, and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn. 